Hello, and welcome to Be the Serpent, a podcast of extremely deep literary merit, with your classy and sophisticated hosts, Alexandra Rowland, Freya Mosk, and Jennifer Mace. On today's episode, we're discussing The Watchmaker of Filigree Street by Natasha Pulley, A Criminal Magic by Lee Kelly, and Duende by Astolat. Hello and welcome to episode 61, A Time and a Place. I'm Alex and I'm the Heian era of Japan. I'm Freya and I am Edwardian England. I'm Macy and I am Suleiman's Ottoman Empire. We are three redheaded fantasy authors. And today we're talking about uh, historical fantasy, which is very exciting. Mm-hmm. Macy, do you want to tell us why you are the Magnificent Century? Because they had lesbians? Well, sure. Okay. I, I feel like that goes without saying. Uh, but before we get into that, fellow serpents, uh, what are we reading? I just finished reading The True Queen by Zen Cho, which is relevant to this episode. So I'll probably talk about it a bit later on. It's the sequel to Sorcerer to the Crown, her original Regency era historical fantasy. I also read an ice hockey romance called Heated Rivalry by Rachel Reed, which was quite fun. Very rivals and enemies to lovers. Mm. It was a quick read. It was very enjoyable. And I've also just read Tooth and Claw by Joe Walton. Love that book. It is a great book. So this is a book in which all the female characters are taking part in Jane Austen plots. (laughs) All the male characters are taking part in Charles Dickens plots. And they are (laughs) Mm. all dragons. Yes, I every single person to be in one it of the female is a characters in that situation, frankly. Yeah, the male plots are out, you know, integrity and not taking bribes at work and challenging an inheritance and taking one another to court and things like that. But also, like, but dying of tuberculosis a lot. Nobody dies of tuberculosis. Several people get good. eaten. Uh, that's less good. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, if, if that sounds like a pitch that you would enjoy, you would probably <laughs> enjoy this book. I had an amazing time reading it. I think I'm definitely going to reread it as a comfort book. And everybody who deserves a happy ending gets one. Everyone who deserves to be eaten gets eaten. <laughs> Tooth and Claw by Joe Walton. Check it out. It's a good book. Good book. Uh, meanwhile, I have read a romance book because Freya is um, inexorable um, called You Deserve Each Other which was a really fun enemies to lovers uh, romp in which the couple are engaged and the girl of the couple would kind of really wish they weren't engaged and she slowly realizes that the boy has been trying to get her to break off the engagement for a while now and so they go into a full-out prank war to try to get the other one to say chicken and it's Mm. they're terrible human beings and i love them that's a really fun nice. book. It's a really fun book nice. and it's quick. And I also reread Sabriel because it's on my shelf and I was feeling nostalgic for necromancers with bells. Mm. Not like that's a, that was such a good series. Yes. I love that. My my cat, you may notice, is named after the magical cat from that series, <laughs> who is also occasionally a monster cute, but also bitey. <laughs> yes. A fucking murderous rage monster yeah you did you sure did call it i really did well i feel like (laughs) the name that you give a cat is sort of prophetic and when i got her i was really deep into this con artist series and so i almost named her after one of the characters from the series and then i was like it's probably a bad idea to name her after a con artist that seems like asking so you went for an eldritch monstrosity (laughs) instead (laughs) yeah yeah well done Uh, anyway, uh, what have I been reading? I can't fucking remember basically anything that I have consumed in the last couple weeks. Um, quarantine brain is really getting to me lately. Uh, I did start a new Chinese drama on the recommendation <laughs> slash bullying of our friend Grace, who is a menace. Yes. Uh, this Chinese drama is called Winter Begonia, and it is set in uh, pre-war China, and it is about this rich merchant guy uh, who wears the most fantastic Western hats, <laughs> um, very stylish hats, uh, and a opera singer, huh. and uh, who is my son. He is my literal <laughs> <laughs> biological son, and he wears these long puffy coats that make him look like a baby penguin. Um, I love him. Uh, and... 
I'm only like 10 episodes into it, but I'm having a good time and they're BFFs and they get drunk and decide to go into business together and <laughs> they don't to steal save... chickens. No, they don't steal chickens yet. Not yet. <laughs> um, because the theater troupe is struggling and there's been uh, embezzlement from some of the, the uh, theater troupe members. Uh, presumably they fall in love and live happily ever after, but I haven't seen the end of the show, and I think knowing Grace, it's probably not a happy <laughs> ending anyway. <laughs> Grace likes the Chinese dramas that sort of rip your heart out and leave you sobbing for two weeks afterwards. Yeah. She told me to stop after episode 32. <laughs> <laughs> like, so, she said that the war she was like, actually does start. Yeah, the war does start. There's a thing. Um, History let's see, I also have played... I, I, I remembered that a couple years ago I was made an alpha tester for this online game called Eleven Giants, which is a reboot of a game called Glitch, which I don't know either if either of you played back in the day. It was a great game. I got to be an alpha tester for the for the reboot, and I remembered that I had that as a thing, so I played some of that this week, and that's about it. Read a lot of fanfic. Yep. Yep. Very good. Yep. Yeah, but I think that we also have some more interesting news. We have a mystery, even... a mystery dot a, point with lots of mystery. capital letters and some punctuation. Macy, I don't know what could possibly what could be, be this. New... Do you know what's happening? I don't know what's Witchcraft. happening. Witchcraft. Who could, who could tell us what's happening here? What's happening, dear listeners? <laughs> if you missed several personal explosions of mine on Twitter. Uh, the big announcement this week is that I have sold one of my books, Woo! or in Yay! fact, I have sold three books, two of which do not yet exist. Yeah. Uh, but the first book is called A Marvelous Light, and it's the start of a trilogy set in Edwardian England. The pitch is magicians, murder, and manor house parties in Edwardian England. <laughs> mm. And so I sold that to Tor.com with Roshi Chen editing, and I'm Yay! very, very, very excited about that. I have been working on how to pitch it properly and not just ramble on nonsensically about manor houses. So yeah. mm -hmm. the pitch in a short paragraph is that it's about a young civil servant who finds he has been accidentally named as liaison to the magical bureaucracy of Britain and that his predecessor has disappeared in mysterious circumstances. So he has to work with his magical counterpart to uncover a plot, remove a curse and maybe fall in love. And it features Yay. many, many tropes which we have covered on episodes of this podcast, such yes, as magic magical sex. houses and romance and sex, obviously, because it's a book by me. Yep. And with, with magical, magic. si magical system world building. And this yep. episode, historical fantasy, because it is a historical fantasy. Yes. And it's super queer. Very queer, yes. Oh, and you forgot to mention the best part, which is that it is an amazing book and I love it a lot. And uh, all of Oh, of course. How could I forget? Alex loves this book a lot. So <laughs> Alex loves this book. Macy can't just say that out loud with words. That's not No, no, we, we don't, we don't, it's all right. We will agree that Macy might at some point give it an approving sidelong glance. Dar darling listeners, mm. darling listeners. This book is rather good. Ooh. Oh, rather Ooh. good. <laughs> yes, at the... Thank, yes. <laughs> I have now Sorry. made Freya bashful. <laughs> no, I was, was going to say something that I'm not going to say now. Um, but it is... So it comes out next year, next right? Next year, 2021. 2021, probably... Uh, I have to keep like rearranging this in my brain. It is a fall release, which means fall release. like so September, release. October... Which is Which spring, is spring in for the so. <laughs> Wonderful. Okay. Well, we will continue mentioning it as uh, things develop. Yes. And we've talk Wonderful. you've talked about it here before, but with a different name, right? Yes, I think I talked about it quite a bit when we were talking about magical system world building mm -hmm. episode. At that point, it was called Foresight. Yes. yes. So if people are being confused, it's that book. Yes, it's the one that, that was book. the book formerly known as Foresight, <laughs> now known as A Marvelous Light, first book in the Last Binding trilogy. Yay! Official this names! This is so exciting. So today, dear listeners, we're talking about uh, historical fantasy, which means fantasy set in a particular historical time period. I think that most of the time we like to choose historical time periods that are really vibrant for one thing or another, that have like a recognizable kind of aesthetic to it, to feel really rooted in a particular time. Would you agree? I think that certainly when you're trying to do something that is a specifically historical fantasy 
for historical science fiction, which I would argue Filigree Street kind of is, um, mm. you want it to be a unique setting. Yeah. Um, and not necessarily even recognizable. Like, I don't know that I could have pinpointed where exactly the end of the Shogunate happened, but it was a unique yeah. setting and it could not have happened anywhere else or anywhere else. Uh, and today we're talking about specifically recent historical fantasy, by which we're meaning like late, like 1800s mm -hmm. onwards, right? Sometime in the last roughly yeah, 200 much. years. Mm. Yeah. Um, obviously, this is going to have uh, kind of a Western focus with the tentpoles that we have chosen. Um, but Freya, you are eyeing tentpoles for another one like this? Yes, I'm considering that we might want to do sometime in the future, uh, pre-1800s episode with some other temples which maybe might have a little mm. bit more um diversity in terms of ge the geography of where they are set yeah. i've already mm. got one or two things in mind oh, for that. Nice. cool cool some of yes. this of course um, is a little bit of um bias in the publishing system as to what editors and publishing houses tend to pick up and push um yeah. namely western settings that they are familiar with and feel that will sell well Yes, yes, very true. Um, so today we, for the tentpoles, we picked three that specifically have some really strong speculative elements uh, woven into them mm -hmm. as well. Uh, and so Freya is going to start us off with the first one. Go ahead. So the first tentpole today is The Watchmaker of Filigree Street by Natasha Pulley, which is one of my favorite books. I've read it a couple of times now and I really, really love it. It's about a young man called Nathaniel who works as a telegraphist or telegraphist or something that I have never tried to say out loud before. <laughs> Let's go with telegrapher um, for the government. And he is given the mysterious gift of a pocket watch, which ends up saving his life when there is a bombing. And he goes in search of the person who made this pocket watch, who turns out to be uh, a Japanese man called Mori, who is living in London and who has the ability to see potential futures mm -hmm. and to know things based on different futures that may happen. The other major character in the book is a young woman by the name of Grace, who is studying essentially physics of the time uh, at university and how her life starts to interweave with the lives of Nathaniel and Maury. Mostly it uses England as the setting, but it does actually show you some flashbacks to Maury's life in Japan around the same time period. And it's got a really good, well-researched and really well-textured sense of time and place, I think. I found the degree to which the theme of kind of assimilation um, and like cultural assimilation was woven through this to be really interesting um, because a lot of it's also set in and around this kind of model Japanese village that the Victorians had set up in the middle of London, which I believe was a real thing, right? Yeah. But I think that some of this is the parallels that are being drawn between the Irish quote-unquote terrorists who are trying to win independence and will in fact do so about 50 years in the future from this book, um, with the Japanese inhabitants of that village, some of whom kind of have sympathies with the Irish. Um, and you certainly see that in the flashbacks as well, right? You see the Western influence and you see the old samurai lords kind of pushing back against these men in business suits who are trying to tell them what to do. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I think it is a really good job of showing that kind of push and pull of cultural tensions both on the micro level between people mm -hmm. and on the larger level in terms of the themes that are explored and the people going to these exactly right like the Japanese people going to the meetings of you know the Irish people who are protesting yeah I think it does a really good job of giving you a sense of a time in flux it does it gives you a very mm -hmm. strong aesthetic of yes here is a particular time but it shows you that this is not a static setting that, that this is a place that is on the move from somewhere to somewhere else but mm -hmm. i think one thing that it also does specifically that i find unusual in um historical fiction is that it doesn't pretend that this country we're in is the only thing that's happening right it kind of brings globalization into the picture it has characters from different parts of the world um like mm -hmm. you don't see all that much victoriana or steampunk in this era of england 
that will talk about other countries as also important and significant in the plot, unless it's Napoleon yeah. or something. Right. Yeah, right. in terms of the impact directly on England, rather than, like, the people in Japan don't actually care that much. Like, there's yeah. that westernization and the pushback against it, but they don't actually really care about what's happening in England. Yeah, like, why yeah. would they? It doesn't matter that there's some Irish bombs blowing up the Houses of Parliament. Yeah, mm. they have their own shit yeah. going on. <laughs> uh, Macy, you said earlier that you would think this, you'd consider this maybe a little bit more sci-fi rather th than fantasy. Do you want to talk a little bit more about why? Well, I think it kind of straddles the borderline, right? Um, yeah. And this comes from a similar place as the discussion as to whether, for example, the X-Men is sci-fi or fantasy. Mm-hmm. And I think that if we're looking at genres as ways to sell things, I would call X-Men science fiction, right? Because it mm -hmm. tries to give you a reason for why things happen that is scientific, which we get in this book as well. We have Grace using the scientific method to try to come to understand how Mori understands the future. Um, and I don't know if she's meant to be right and physics is really meant to work quite so differently in this book it was it was really mm -hmm. fun um she was investigating the medium through which light waves travel a substance known as ether which i believe was a real victorian theory as to how light works yes yep um which yep. of course is not how light works except maybe in this world it was could be, could be. <laughs> and that would be speculative as fuck yeah. yeah i thought it was interesting that they chose to do that like they i think the book would not actually have suffered at all if they had provided no explanation right for Maury's ability yeah. and why it was that he could see possible futures. And you see, to and me, then, then it would be more fantasy. That's true. Yes. But as you say, they don't tell us directly whether Grace is correct. <laughs> they say she has come up with a model that currently works. Mm -hmm. And it's not presented as, oh, yes, this is the truth. She solved the mystery. It's just according to her experiments and her modeling, this is how it works. And Maury has his own mental image of how his powers work. Mm -hmm. But it is also not a world with magic, right? It no. is a world that has this one individual who has this particular power, which again is very superhero fiction. Yes. Yes, and it it also has it it implies that there are certain semi-magical things that could be accessible to other people because Mori gives Thaniel that vial of weather mm -hmm. to to tell him that he can choose the weather for the next day. Um, and so, like, if that can be produced on a mass scale, you probably wouldn't want to. You don't want to mess with the weather too much. Um, but that's something that other people would be able to use if they can figure out the scientific method behind behind why Mori was able to make that thing in the first place. Mm. Mm -hmm. And the I was thinking about this then, this science fiction versus fantasy. The final sequence or the sequence that leads up to um, Mori, you know, basically being threatened with being killed is a very physics and science fiction-y type mm -hmm. of explanation because it has to do mm -hmm. with chaos theory and randomness. <laughs> and how do you sneak up on or how do you fight against somebody who can see everything that you might be doing? And the way you do it is by trying not to make a decision until the last moment and then by using as a tool something that operates entirely on essentially the same concept as flipping a coin. Mm -hmm. Each movement yep. of it is completely random, and so it cannot be foreseen by somebody who is able to sense patterns in order to find the future. Yeah, but I, super wonderful book. I really yeah, loved and it. I I really loved the way that that world building was done around the implications of such a power because you're right, it's quite a small scale magic in that we only see one person with it, but at the same time they don't shy away from how big the implications are of somebody having that power. Right. And part of Grace's role in the story is to point out to Thaniel and to the reader the huge power differential that exists between Mori and everyone else in the story, mm -hmm. where he can tell what you might do and what you're going to say. Uh, and when he's falling in love with Nathaniel, the power differential of somebody who knows everything about the future that you might have together. And it was shown in really interesting ways, like him like Maury's English having a northern accent because Maury is was all about remembering yep. the future that he has spent together with Thaniel and learned English from him and as events in the book shift and change and it looks like they may not get that future together after all Maury's English gets worse and worse 
Mm-hmm. It, it's, it's constructed really, really well. Yeah. Like it's a really masterful piece of plotting. Yeah, and even his accent changes because the English that he does have would be used would be learned from someone else who has a different accent. It was fascinating. It was a gorgeous book. Yeah, and I think that it's placing Maury as a figure something like um, Doctor Manhattan, right? Um, mm. To them, like that's definitely how Grace sees him. Um, yeah, but he has a huge weakness, which is anything to do with chance. And so the whole thing that derails his future with Thaniel is a single roll of a casino game uh, that causes yep. Thaniel to meet Grace at a particular point in time and thus divert. But I think yeah. that for me, one of the things that makes this a really great example of how to use uh, fantasy in a historical setting is how elegant it was to use watchmaking and seeing the future in a story that's really all about kind of slicing the world into understandable pieces, which is what watches were for. Originally, they were for mm-hmm. saying, you know, latitudes when you're traveling by ship. They were kind of what allowed the triangle trade and all of the expansion across the oceans to take place and all of the colonialism that came from that. So yep. using and weaving a magic that is a metaphor for the theme and the heart of the story is really elegant and i appreciated that Mm, i agree it's a time period that's about fundamental shifts Mm -hmm. in the way that we conceive time and space Mm -hmm. and to have somebody who can see the future in the time of the industrial revolution right where all the focus is on the promise of the future in a rather colonial way (laughs) yeah and also just being able to control and measure the future and all the people in it right like a lot of the people in Victorian government were trying to control their citizens and other people's citizens. Yes. Yeah. Speaking of controlling citizens, Macy, would you like to introduce the second tentpole? Yes. So there's this very obscure um, portion of American history that people really don't find all that interesting that you two probably <laughs> haven't heard of. Sure. Tell <laughs> us about it. <laughs> it's called the Prohibition. Yeah. And the prohibition my understanding which is i was studying more the depression than the prohibition itself um is Mm. that this was kind of a religious campaign to try to reduce violence by saying alcohol causes violence so we're just going to ban alcohol it's morally bad let's control our populace and say nobody can have this um and so what lee kelly does with a criminal magic which is our next tentpole is she says, I want to tell a gangster story about prohibition, except instead of banning alcohol, they are banning magic, where magic in this world, uh, one of its properties is that you can brew a kind of pure magic drug when you are spelling, um, that people can drink and kind of experience hallucinations and feelings of power uh, and basically trip. Um, And so that is what they are trying to ban. And so this book follows two characters, one who is, uh, who was convicted of, well, his father was caught producing this drug and Mm -hmm. convolutedly this kid is now going undercover with a gang to try to redeem himself and become a prohibition agent. Um, And then the other character, Joan, is in a very impoverished situation with a kind of drunkard uncle um, and is trying to become a magician who brews this shine to make her way in the world and to kind of gain control of her own life. And save her family. And save her family. And I really loved the, like, tactileness of this magic. Um, Mm. there's a whole thing throughout the book of pure magic only lasts one day, which I also thought was a really good, neat example of world building. Because what this means is that unlike alcohol, you can't really smuggle this stuff. You can smuggle some of the less pure kinds, but the real deal, you need to have a magician who brewed it the same day as you want to drink it. Yeah, you have to go straight to the Mm -hmm. source. So it can't be like a widespread thing. You can't ship it, as you said. Yeah, you can't. And it's not really useful to gangs as a money-making thing because it's based on what that 
single magician can produce that day right in front of you Mm -hmm. rather than an expandable sort of scale up kind of enterprise one of the things that this world building does um is gives you a system where the thing you're prohibiting is controlled by individuals um so one magician can choose to make shine uh, in a way that you know one person could choose to make alcohol but not as easily and they need equipment they need supplies so this kind of puts the decision to break the law or not on every individual magician's shoulders uh, which is i guess a kind of ya staple right how do you get power into the hands of an individual yeah so what did you think of it i liked Prayer. i liked the other aspect of magic that was portrayed which is the use of magic as entertainment mm. Uh, usually through pr- producing like you know very beautiful and complex illusions and so the equivalent speakeasies were places where people would go to get shine but beforehand they may have magic performed for them as a show mm-hmm. in a way that uh, reminded me a lot of Aaron Morgenstern's The Night Circus which is also about construction of beautiful whimsical magic for an audience. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of quite vivid and complex descriptions in this book about how those are put together by different magicians working in a group. And I found all that to be really fun. Like it was a nice diversion into here's here's some interesting shit about how the magic might work. So if you're interested in like an interesting magical system that still has quite a lot of gaps in it because there's a lot of introductions of new aspects of the Mm. ways that the magic can be used. There's a sense that different families have different types of magic, that Joan, our main character, has a hereditary kind of blood magic that her mother's family has had. And I kept sort of I quite liked it when there were little mentions of all these other types of magic. But it did make it seem a little bit like the world was both bigger and smaller than the book was Mm. trying to tell you Mm. that it was because the focus was so much on shine and transporting shine with a secondary focus on, look, we made some pretty illusions. And the implications for the blood magic came down to, can we use it to create an essential airtight seal in order to transport this and not have it go bad when all of the little incidentals about how else magic could be used in this world were very interesting to me. And I kept wanting the story to charge <laughs> yeah. off and follow the little tangents, which it couldn't, but... Right. Yeah. 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 Uh, and there was the um, the Irish fairy dust, yes. which was essentially like a replacement for cocaine. And so you kind of wonder, like, okay, well, whiskey is in this world. Is real cocaine also in this <laughs> world? And what's going on with that? Um yeah, Like, thinking about it now, she probably could have just kept the cocaine being a thing. And I think that might have been more potentially interesting to I mean, it was perfectly, perfectly nice how it was. But I think it would have brought an interesting element of the supernatural versus the mundane. Mm. Yeah. And sort of like the, the dichotomy between those two. Mm. This is the first book in a series, no, is it? this is a standalone. It's actually... Um, is it a standalone? Yeah, Nava edited this. Oh, Nava! <laughs> she's great it it felt a little bit like it could have been meant to be a series because the end sort of like comes on you abruptly and i was like oh there's room for another book here it has kind of an open ambiguous ending mm-hmm. uh for what happens to joan and i was like oh i would be super interested to read another book about joan and what she does next and sort of how she stays one step ahead of the people who probably want to kill her now. I would love to read, like, Mob Boss Joan. Yeah! (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Uh, I think the thing that was getting in the way for me is that I have a fundamental disinterest in gangster stories. Ah. So I was like, oh, there's a romance here that's being done quite well. Like, the romance beats are really good. Like, I'm not yeah. You know, 100% sold on the romance because the characters had so much going on. Like, the mm. motivations for the characters were so clear at all times. Yes. Like, those, they were handled really well. So part of me was like, oh, we could we could dig in further to this romance. And another part of me wanted them to dig in further to the magic. And the third part of me was like, I don't care about gangsters. <laughs> I, just, I don't care. That's valid. That's valid. So that, that's, a me, that's a me problem. <laughs> oh, I, I did think that... Um... One of the things I really liked about this book and as a historical book was how almost claustrophobically each of the two characters were just in their own world and kind of locked into their own mindset and circumstance, Mm. right? Like, 
particularly if you'd taken Joan at the beginning of the book in her little shack in the woods with her uncle and her cousin and her sister, you could never have imagined her investigating other types of magic in the world. Right? Yeah. She was just or so leaving in a little box. And even once you get into Baltimore, into Washington, DC, and into the gangster moonshine glamour, you know, flapper skirts for everyone, um, they're both very much a product of their circumstance. Yes. And it's just really strong yes. point of view work. Uh, but they, they, I don't think that they could have broken out of their ruts isn't quite the right word, but their um, contexts, maybe? Yeah, I completely agree with you. It's It has some really strong things to say about lacking privilege mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. how difficult it can be to break out of poverty mm -hmm. um, and how if you are stuck in a corner like Joan is, right. um, you're going to take any opportunity you can to get out of it. And at the beginning of the book, you know, she has really strong morals. She has really strong morals all the way through. But at certain points of the book, she has to look at her morals and decide, is survival more important than my personal philosophies? She and comes out as a strong Slytherin infirmary. She she comes out as a strong Slytherin, right? Because she's like, well, yeah, I got to survive. I got to protect my my family. And if that means, you know, doing a bad thing or a slightly bad thing to do it, then that's what I have to do to survive. Um, and I think that's incredibly valid of her. She was a great character. Mm. I really liked her. Did you enjoy the Escher space magic in the early part? That was really neat. Yes. Did you enjoy it? I think that you probably enjoyed it even more. I can't remember which part we're talking about. Oh, this is the the Escher space. Where oh, oh yeah, the Escher space. Yes, yes. No, I did like that. That was really cool, actually. I would have I would have read like five more chapters about the like weird ass construct house that yeah, all these magicians yeah. were trying to shape at once. That was cool. And then like yes. squish the enemies down into like a blob, and I'm like, that's gruesome. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they that kill was people gruesome. in really gruesome ways, and I love it. Yes, yeah, I think yeah. I think because it's interesting you talked about it being YA, Macy, because I had not realized <laughs> it had been meant to be YA at all. Like I think if you start off with just Joan's story. It's classically YA, like it's a mm. you know, young woman coming of age has to, you know, in dire circumstances has to put herself forward in order to save her family and gets put into a competition of magic, like <laughs> classic YA setup. Yep. Classic YA. But yeah. Alex's point of view doesn't have a YA feel to it. It feels no, like it's right. like kind of uncomfortably what new adult is trying to be plus adult gangster. Like, She's living mm. in a magical YA story. He is living in a Godfather movie with its teeth <laughs> slightly filed down. And yeah. the switch back and forth between them, even though they are both very strong points of view, completely threw me as to what kind of book I was reading. Because it's like, oh, it's yeah. not YA. Okay, cool. Yeah, that's fine. It's an adult book. They're, you know, they're dealing with adult themes. They're dealing with, you know, growing up. It's just, it did not come across to me at YA at all, apart from the very beginning. With I will say point of view. it was at least as YA for me as um, um, Fantasy Heist book. Oh, Six of Crows. Six of Crows, yeah. Yeah, true. <laughs> yeah, because Six of Crows also had some like gory death and quite adult themes. In and it quite well, adult characters were like, yes, I, the 15-year-old, have a fraught past of a lifelong <laughs> love with this person. Like, but I, but at least they like, were all teenagers. I thought Alex was meant to be in his 20s. I thought Alex was meant to be just about to go to college, but he couldn't. Oh, I thought he was at college. No, he wasn't. I think... Okay. He was wow. tried as a minor when his father was being prosecuted, right? Oh, oh that's right. Okay, there yeah. you go. Dun dun dun. Oh. But it is well, 36 yeah. minutes into the episode. Alex, will you tell that's us true. about some sexy stuff? I will tell you about <laughs> some sexy <laughs> stuff, Macy. Good, good. So our... Our third tentpole is our fanfic tentpole, and it's by this very obscure fanfic <laughs> author. I don't know if we've ever talked about her on the podcast before. It's Astolette. Again. We're talking about another Astolette fanfic. <laughs> We're back on our bullshit. Yes, We're we back are. on our bullshit. We never left. Uh, we just have to systematically go through every Astolette fanfic. We can't. Uh, and then we, 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 we can't. can't. <laughs> Why not? a bunch of RPF. Oh, okay. Well, not every single Astolat fanfic. <laughs> Many Astolat I think we would be stormed. <laughs> I think uh, we would have an uprising if we started going through every single one. 
That's Alex, true. you should start um, a third podcast that's just you reading Astrolab Pancakes. <laughs> 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 On your own in a room. <laughs> what, a, what a great podcast. I won't even bother recording it. It'll just be a podcast that I say out loud into an empty room. Alex, Alex I've got it. I've solved it. What this is, you see... It's a YouTube yeah. channel. You just put a video camera on you sitting there reading. You're not even saying anything. You're just reading them. <laughs> a live stream of me. Live stream of Alex. <laughs> uh, it's a great idea, Macy. I love it. Let's talk about this more off air. Uh, so the particular fanfic that we are talking about today, dear listeners, is Duende. Good book. Uh, which is, it's, it's a great fanfic. Uh, it is a master and commander fanfic. Uh, about Jack Aubrey and Stephen Maturin. Have you, have either of you read any of the nope. Master and Commander books? Yep. I see, I, I've seen the movie once. I've, I've read I've every se- Hornblower book. but I've like- seen the movie many, many, many times. And I've read the first mm. three Master and Commander books. My mother has all of them and has read them about eight times. <laughs> wow. Yeah, yeah. She's very intimate. And they're great. They're fantastic books. I think I just read, I think I read the first three in this great enthusiastic rush. And then something else came up. And yeah, I blinked. left them at my mother's house. I blinked, and yeah, one day I will get back yeah. to them because they are really good. It, Macy, you mentioned that you've read all of the Hornblower mm-hmm. books. I have seen a good deal of the TV show um, because I was madly in love with the actor who played <laughs> Hornblower. <laughs> He's a very cute boy. He's just a very cute. Is that boy. the Welsh one? I think so. Young He's Griffith? got like curly dark hair, and he's a- adorable. I didn't have okay. access to. The I, TV I have one. not actually watched them. I just I think I I know of the tv series and i think it has the cute welshman yeah put it this way i read those books repeatedly at an age where i was too young to snigger at the name hornblower oh sure (laughs) well sure (laughs) (laughs) anyway so this pick this pick though is great i'm going to drag us back on top (laughs) a dick joke from macy good times Uh, thank you macy (laughs) vagina joke the other day yes i did i made a a beautiful vagina joke in chat (laughs) well it was. It wasn't really an intentional vagina joke until I said a. Anyway, speaking of horns and blowing, Ramus is eating out. Alex, would you like yes, to tell us about right. this sexy thing? Were there blowjobs? There, there were. Yeah, some were horns blowjobs, were blown. Yes. So in this fic, Jack Aubrey ha- is just about to be promoted to have a command of his own ship, but he needs to be paired with a. Uh, sword master he, so he's basically a magician and he needs a sword master to chop off people's heads for him yeah. um in a sexy they're soulmates kind of way because the soul bond increases his control control of his own magic it's it's right. once again very much like um loveless right you have to be yes, bonded it and it boosts your magic um as a wind blower as he is to have a powerful sword dude so he's pissed off the admiral uh, by sleeping with the admiral's wife, which is <laughs> so, which is which is canonical. Which is oh shit. And so the admiral Hornblower would never. Hornblower is far too much of a good boy. Um, Jack Aubrey. And would. so the admiral, to get back at him, is like, "I'm going to give you a command, but I'll give you a shitty command with the shittiest swordmaster I can find. This swordmaster, who's like 30 years old and doesn't have any rings at all, and rings are earned when you chop off people's heads, I guess. Um, oh, he had two. That's right. He has one in each thumb. Uh, and." So naturally, Jack Aubrey is like, oh no, this shitty swordmaster, but fine, I will be honorable. I will take it. It's I better will throw than nothing. I'll pop this sword. <laughs> throw Macy, you're doing so well. <laughs> well done, Macy. Petition to rephrase swordmaster to swordboy. Swordboy, right? I agree. I sign your petition. Um, so he kind of has this forced marriage trope to his swordboy. Yes. Uh, and the admiral is like, so you have to consummate in front of me. And he's like, um, no. And he glides out the window with his sword boy and they have sex in the bushes. It's just and 
iconic and then they go out on a voyage and immediately run into a French ship and uh, Jack Aubrey is like well I have to be a brave captain of this ship we are going to take this prize because I have a sword boy now and he's very expensive <laughs> um, <laughs> so they jump on the ship and his sword boy kills like nine fucking people I think at some point you may people. have to mention that Stephen Maturin is the sword master which you have not actually oh, yes. said <laughs> Saying sword boy. Stephen Maturin, the sword boy. Uh, Sword boy. uh, Jumps on the ship and, like, chops off nine people's heads. And it's great. Uh, And everyone is like, there's no possible way that your sword boy killed nine people in one fight. That doesn't happen. But they have a duel uh, with the people who are being rude to them and then they make out and they fall in love and it turns out that the, the sword boy Stephen Matron is actually like the best sword boy in the <laughs> whole is. world My and he used to have like he is the best magical pony the best <laughs> magical pony and I will like him all night <laughs> and he actually had like 99 rings or something before his previous mage died tragically and all, all of uh, this and all talk. of the world building manages to be fit into 14,000 words which is good. context here context here is that Astolat wrote a series of five Master and Commander AUs in very quick succession in 2006 so this is vintage fucking Astolat mm-hmm. mm. Um, and they were all amazing, but this one takes one of Astolat's favorite tropes, the soul bond, as yes. evidenced in Alex's favorite fic, um, yes. which we should tell the audience that I've forgotten the name of, Alex. Uh, Dangerous If Unbound. There we go. Um, it's the per- person of interest fic. Of taking two people and saying they will enhance each other by being together, by being bonded magically. Mm. Um, and I really kind of love this for this era because it's very Hamilton. It's very, you're my second in a duel. Um, it's very, you know, Black Sails. Yeah. Um, so it does kind of match with the world building quite well to have these men who will fight for you. I guess there were female swordmasters as well, presumably, but... Presumably. It's very, like, defending my honour. Yes. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, Right? mm -hmm. And chivalry. Strong, filthy vibes. Yes. Strong, filthy vibes, because Astolat loves that more than anything, and she's valid. (laughs) But you're right, it makes for an interesting choice to put this kind of magic into that particular setting, the Napoleonic Mm -hmm. War, because not only did you have people having to fight duels with one another on points of honour, but as well as magic being soul bond, you then have those soul bonds enhancing the perceived power of a fighting military. So mm-hmm. yes. so the people who can control the waves and control the wind for fighting the navy and they have their powers enhanced. And there's this discussion in society in the fic of what is Bonaparte going to do when Bonaparte mm. has a sword master because he has the ability, well, his, his magic is, is like seeing what's happening in other places. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Farsing. For, yeah. Like yeah. forcing to be able to tell, like, you know, if I land my army here, this is a good idea or a bad idea for this reason. And there's this right, right. nervousness in English society that they've heard that Bonaparte has finally taken a swordmaster uh, because he's right. been trying to find one who is correct for his status. And how is that going to. He's gonna... been trying to court Stephen. He's been trying to court. Because our yes. boy is a Mary Sue. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Mm. And how is that going to change the course of the war? And this is a very specific magic that works very specifically in this social context. Mm -hmm. And it would be an interesting thought experiment to think how would these soul bonds that enhance different types of magics be moved into the fabric of society in different times. But here, in this one, it just works so well with the already rigid societal structure and the focus on the military. Mm-hmm. Someone put a thing here about sexual. Oh, mores. that was me. Yes, yes. I thought it was really interesting to compare Duende directly with a criminal magic in terms of how the magic system changes the world. Because mm. in uh, criminal magic, you have um, the prohibition is not for alcohol; it's for magic, mm-hmm. and so that changes some of the the societal attitudes towards um, alcohol. Mm-hmm. And in Duende, you have this soul bond uh, mechanic in place, and that changes how people view same-sex attraction. Mm-hmm. 
because at least we don't see really outside of this, but at least in the context of a mage and his sword boy, it seems that that's accept- <laughs> that it's acceptable for, it's for them so to tantalizing. I'm sorry. <laughs> a mage and his sword boy. I like the a word sword, sword master. boy. Because it goes with the master and commander thing as well. It yeah, does. It's true. But but anyway, it's it, at okay, least continue. in terms at least in terms of this this soul bond, it's acceptable for a, a same sex relationship to right. take place and be public. Mm. Right. Where everyone's yeah. kind of like, oh, how cute! They're just bonded and they're like oh, making out events. in a bush again. <laughs> okay, okay, I guess that's how that works. It's true. It doesn't yeah. explain whether that is at all expanded to any kind of greater acceptance of same-sex relationships in outside of a bond because it's clearly because it's fourteen thousand words long yes i know (laughs) right we are running towards nearly 50 minutes all right let's oh yes we should talk about some other things as well let's talk about some other stuff let's talk about inventing magic systems because i have this thing about magic systems which you two are long-suffering um, and have to deal with every time I'm yelling about trying to figure out one of my books. Um, I don't think that it's long-suffering of me to listen with fond amusement <laughs> when my <laughs> podcast wife says legitimate smart things. Uh, I, I think that I think that I am very fortunate to be in that situation. I'm going to come back to you with string theory one of these days. Anyway, yep. <laughs> I know. Vengeance is mush. coming to me. Yes, mush mush. Um, I feel that... If you aren't using a magic system to develop the theme of your book, then you're wasting an opportunity. And similarly, Mm. I feel that if you're writing historical and you're not writing something where the theme of your narrative is in some way related to the specific historical setting you've chosen, you're wasting an opportunity. Mm. And those two things kind of really go together for me. So if you're building a magic system for a historical setting, you should be marrying the theme to the time, the place, and the magic. How? Freya. <laughs> How? Freya. Freya. <laughs> so, all right, I will use my book <laughs> as an example. No. <laughs> Although it is an interesting Huge one because surprise. I kind of went about doing this a little backwards because the reason it is set in 1908 in the Edwardian era is because I wanted the second book to be set on an ocean liner around the time of the Titanic. <laughs> that's it. So I was like, okay, <laughs> when's the Titanic? 1900s? Okay, that's where we're setting it then. And then I went <laughs> away and did a whole lot of research about uh, England at in around the early 1900s, which is the very beginning of Downton Abbey era, if that helps anybody. Right. But I think that your magic and the way that it uses contracts and the land um, and even the cradling is very much built in and around that era and that society. Yes. And I think the reason that worked is because I was building them all from the ground up together. Right. Like when right. I was developing the characters and then I, when I was developing how the overarching plot was going to work because I knew when I wanted to set it and I'd done a mm. little bit of research into that setting. I had enough of a scaffolding for what kind of themes I might want to explore that I could just build it into the magic from the word go. That makes sense. Mm. So I wanted to have it ask the question, both as writers and as readers, for us, why historical fantasy rather than secondary world fantasy? What would be the reasons that you would write it? What would be the reasons that you would enjoy reading it? So for me, world building is something that I, I like it, but it's not something that I love, unlike Alex. <laughs> um, and it's not one of my strengths, I don't think, as a writer. And so for me, writing historical fantasy was great because I had this existing canvas. You know, I had mm-hmm. the warp and the weft of plain white, and I could put whatever embroidery I wanted onto that canvas. I didn't have to reinvent sure. the wheel. I didn't have to think about how society might be completely different. And because I was writing a secret magic rather than a magic that had been baked into an, an open in society for years and years, I didn't have to think about how that might have changed the course of history or the social mores of the time. I could just say, the world is as it was. Let's start building underneath that and in between the layers of society. And so there's less to do. I think for me, to want to write a historical fantasy, I would have to want to write historical fiction. I would Mm. have to be drawn to a specific time and place 
for some reason um to say something uh and then the magic would come from that because i'm incapable of not having magic right so <laughs> i kind of do want to do something at some point maybe with the thatcherite coal mines um and mm. that kind of era in the northeast of england like the industrial england just because it's a really big part of my heritage and i feel that that then ties very neatly back into fairy mm. and iron um yes 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 but yeah i'm not as drawn to writing it because i find that if you're not doing it because there's something about the history that you really want to deal with for me, I find it too constrictive because I do like broad world building and I do like the consequences of world building changing the world. Yeah. Um, and I think that a really great example here of someone who does this really well is Naomi Novik's Temeraire series, where mm -hmm. the dragons are a big, massive change in the world and a lot of things about the world have changed, but it's also still the Napoleonic Wars somehow yeah it's still <laughs> recognizably what it is I, that's witchcraft <laughs> yes i agree with everything that macy said because i too really like building in secondary worlds and to do historical fiction well i feel like you have to have way more familiarity with your source material mm. and do a lot more research um and it ends up being uh sort of the iceberg theory where 90 percent of it is below the surface right um, whereas with his, with, um, secondary worlds, it's still the iceberg theory, but you can kind of imply the ice, the iceberg there's instead of having to- There's more space for bullshit. There's more space for bullshit. Exactly. <laughs> what a succinct way to put it, Macy. Thank and normally you. I would have thought of myself <laughs> as somebody who really likes the bullshit, but I don't know. I, no, I you like structure. You're like I very do like neat structure. and tidy. You're very organized. You're very friend. organized. That's true. And like- Honestly, when it comes, it's not that I have a deep fascination with the Edwardian era. It's that I wanted to set it on a boat. And then I started looking into the Edwardian era and at the same time was becoming obsessed with early modernist design. Mm. So I got into the aesthetic quite a lot. And also I just really like PG Woodhouse books. Yeah, so that, that's mood. That helps. Yeah. Whereas when I was looking at Catalyst, I really wanted to set it in Naples. And so I went and built an entire secondary world so that I could have a Naples. So speaking of Naples, Macy, I'd like to talk a little bit about accuracy um, and oh possibly certain types of Italian pasta. <laughs> we are not telling that story. We're not telling that story. <laughs> that telling that story. So there is a joke under here that we're not telling. But no, because I'm not. You're not telling. telling you're not talking about Orzo in public. No, correct. <laughs> no, we're not talking about Orzo in public. But we are going to talk about the difference between accuracy and authenticity. Yes. Go, Macy. Um. So there was this hilarious Slate article I want to say that was floating around about a Regency costumer who evaluates all Regency like Austin adaptations based on the Bill and Ted test. Which is, if your Regency costuming is less accurate than the Beethoven scene from Bill and Ted, <laughs> then she judges you. Okay. <laughs> I haven't seen Bill and Ted, but okay. But yeah, like, does it matter that in Watchmaker, the way that Thaniel lives in the first part of the book is exactly how it would have been in Victorian eras? Or does it matter that it feels right? And it gives us the sense and the mood of that time. The latter, 100%. So there we have authenticity instead of accuracy. Yeah. Yeah, because it, it feels like you're not looking to, okay, well, maybe you are. Uh, maybe you are looking to educate the reader when you're writing a fun, lighthearted fantasy book. But really, the primary goal is usually to give the reader a feeling. And to give the reader a feeling, you want to deal with how things feel. Mm. And that's authenticity rather than accuracy, as you said. Yeah. And Mind you, the, the counterpoint is the author of Hild, Nicola Griffith, which is a fucking amazing book, accidentally got herself a PhD from all the research. <laughs> uh, yeah, look, I think anybody who's writing any kind of historical fiction or fiction set in a specific time and place that has existed or does exist is going to tell you that you cannot get every tiny detail Correct. There'll probably be something that you get wrong, even if it's just a word usage that has changed. Um, and all you can do is try to avoid the really egregious big errors. And the more that you write in a time period or a setting that other people have written in, 
the more there is going to be number yes. one an assumed familiarity possibly with your audience mm. uh, but number two more people out there who know when you get things wrong and i find it interesting to think about this in terms of the <laughs> canon in quotation marks yeah. of particular yeah. historical yeah. settings mm-hmm. which are particularly well used in both in romance in history and in fantasy yeah. like you think about the regency era the regency era as it exists in modern day regency romances is a direct descendant of the Regency society portrayed in Georgette Heyer's books. Like people have mm. done a lot of research and said, yes, yeah, she got a lot of things very right, but there are a lot of ways that she uses language and a lot of things that she portrayed that we now think of as that is how things were in the Regency. And so it's authentic if it's like Georgette Heyer. Yes, it's authentic, it's like but Regency. it's not maybe not necessarily reflecting exactly what society was like. It's created mm-hmm. a communal sandbox that is the agreed upon setting for Regency romance. Yes, yes, and everybody yes, like yes, yes. I'm freaking out over here. Yes, yes, yes. You keep saying like all of the words except the key word, which is fanfic, because writing historical f- fantasy is essentially writing fanfic. It's fanfic. Yeah, exactly. It's fanfiction because you're sh- like you mentioned Freya that shared familiarity that you have with the audience. You mentioned the canon of the setting. <laughs> I like, was setting saying this up of- for you, Alex. Thank I'm you. So I- I'm freaking out here. That was great. What an well, amazing like, epiphany. It's all Napoleon fanfic fiction essentially right, yeah and like the regency romance novels are definitely all fan fiction because like you have this they're all duke of wellington fan right fiction. like you have this this shared fanon like here's here's the way that we've all agreed that the setting will work <laughs> well no but specifically they're rps yeah um like the hornblower books are about admiral nelson like yes horatio hornblower was admiral nelson um and oh god do, do you remember that really really long Lizzie Bennet fanfic where she marries the other Fitzwilliam Darcy oh, and um, then ends up boning Wellington. Yes, it's not an ever fixed mark, but it's like one that was by the same person. Oh, it's like a sequel AU to, to ever F- an ever fixed yeah, mark. Okay. And yeah, she just goes out and bones Wellington. I'm like, well, I mean, sure. uh, The Watchmaker of Filigree Street contains Gilbert and Sullivan mm-hmm. yes, as actual yep. characters <laughs> within the text. Yeah. It's RPF, essentially. Yeah. yeah. That's what's wonderful. What a what a wonderful epiphany to have. <laughs> I mean, but look, I mean, fantasy stories do a lot with playing with the very with the very familiar. Like Jonathan Strange and Mister right. Norrell, I think, is yes. often put forward as the historical fantasy, and it does not just here is Victorian England plus magic built into it and fairyland. It does it in the style of a Victorian novel. Mm. So it's utilizing not just the world, but its literary conventions of that time, which not many other books do. Um, Zencho's. I would say the Zencho. Zencho's the yeah. Sorcerer to the Crown has that Regency cant that is a direct descendant of Heia. The True Queen takes a little bit of a step back from that, which I think helps because Zen is a very good writer stylistically in her own right. Um, and you get a bit more of her voice and a bit less Heia voice in the second one. Um, and she's doing something very deliberate. She's taking the Heia canon, which was very white and kind of ignored colonialism and was quite racist. And she is exploring colonialism and interrogating race relations within England by using magical world building. Mm. And if we're mentioning a few, like you're reminding me now of Jeanette Ng's Under a Pendulum Sun, Ooh, yeah. mm. um, which was a, another historical fantasy, though we don't think of that as much because a lot of it ended up set in fairyland with the missionaries. But it did use a fair degree of that language and the linguistic. Oh, yeah. yeah like it read um, like a Victorian and- Gothic. Right, but perhaps one of my favorite like recent historical fantasies was um I mean we know this Emily Tesh's Silver in the yes, Wood. Yes, yes, yes. Which absolutely does not use that language, but also is not about that class of people, really. Right. Like the main character is a woodsman. Right, right. So he probably wouldn't have been talking like that. No, I mean the best that he may have had like incidental interactions with the higher class as being someone's woodskeeper. But no, he's a, of a completely different class himself. Um, and Where was it? Silver has no excuse. Right, right. <laughs> uh, if we are mentioning our favorites, uh, someone already put my favorite here on a dot point, which is Mary Robinette Kowal's Glamorist series, which is basically mm. just Jane Austen with magic. Uh, and they are fantastic. Yes, I love them. Yes. yes, we talked about the first one in our um, uh, right. world-building fashion and etiquette. The, the clothes, That's right. Yeah. Yes, we yes. did. Yes, we did. Good stuff. Ah. Mm. 
There's so many good books in the world. Oh yes, the one that I also wanted to mention, which is almost more of an alternate history, was ah oh, fuck, Everfair by Nissi Scholl, which is a reimagining of everything that happened in the Belgian Congo if the people whose land that was had managed to win and founded like a futuristic steampunk nation made of balloons. Amazing. And it's great. Amazing, amazing. That's <laughs> cool. very good. Oh, I also just read uh, P. Jelly Clark's The Black God's Drums, um, which mm. is set in New Orleans. Uh, and yeah. it it's kind of like an alternate history thing with magic. And it is fucking incredible. It's a novella and I read it in one sitting. I just sort of devoured it whole. Uh, cannot recommend it highly enough. So there you go, darling listeners, for your plague brain, yes. for your TBR. Yeah. We've we've talked have some. We've books. talked a lot about historical time periods, and of course, uh, linear time has progressed as is its want, and we have reached the end of the episode. Yes, uh, it, it has. has. So good night, darling listeners. everybody thanks for joining us for this episode of be the serpent a podcast of extremely extremely deep literary merit i'm still marveling over freya's revelation that writing historical fantasy or really historical fiction of any kind is basically just writing fanfic ah she's too smart i can't stand it anyway we have some even more exciting topics to talk about in upcoming episodes on the next episode, two weeks hence, on June 3rd, we'll be overwhelmed by nostalgia for the books we loved when we were tiny baby snacks. If you want to prepare in advance, one of the tentpoles for that episode is the Circle of Magic series by Tamara Pierce. So if you have a friend who's into stuff like that, maybe give them a heads up. In the meantime, feel free to continue the conversation with us. Questions, comments, breathless adulations? Contact us at serpentcast at gmail.com at SerpentCast on Twitter and Tumblr, or join in the conversation in our fan Discord chat, linked on the About the Show page of our website. If you enjoy the podcast, please consider supporting us on Patreon. And by the way, your fashion sense will never go out of style. It's timeless.